Good morning, Bridge. So glad you're here. So glad you're watching online. So glad you're with us. As we get into the Word of God this morning, let me ask you a quick question. Do you have any limits? You have any limits? Who set them? Well, just some examples. Let's say when it comes to running. If we were to get the rain to stop for a minute and, uh, and all go line up on the road, kind of the first ever uh, bridge marathon, and we all went up and lined out on Whitley Church Road and we're ready to go for a run. How many of you could run 10 feet? Come on, raise your hands. You could run 10 feet, okay? How many could run 100 feet? How about uh, uh, 100 yards? Any 100 yarders here? Most of us can do 100 yards, manage to gut it out somehow, okay? How many could run a mile? Got any milers here? How about a, how about a 10K? Any 10K runners in the house? Oh, come on, there's some 10K runners here. I see a few, they're just a little shy about it. Any marathoners among us? Got any marathoners? We got any? Yeah, we got one. All right, a couple. I've never tried a marathon before, uh, but... Uh, but I set some limits. I was a runner back in the day. I used to run a lot, nothing, that kind of stuff. But, but I did 15 miles or so a week. I'd do three five-mile runs or so and, and, uh, and stayed in pretty good shape. I remember one day, though, I was out for a run, and I, I kind of set my sights on a personal best that day and, and, uh, in terms of pace. And so I'm out running, and I'm running at a pace that's faster than my usual pace. And I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I'm at about mile four, and, and I'm ahead of my normal personal best. And uh, we were in the Philippines at the time, and, and this Filipino came running up beside me and slowed down beside me, and we chatted for a while as we were running. And he said, so, so uh, how you doing today? I said, man, I'm feeling really good. I'm, you know, I'm just about to break my personal best. And I'm about to blow it all away. It's really cool. How about you? He said, yeah, I'm doing okay. I'm just actually in training right now. And I said, really? Training Training for what? He said, oh, I run the 24-hour the marathon every year. <clears throat> and last year, I said, how far do you run in 24 hours? He said, well, last year I made 160 kilometers. That's 100 miles in 24 hours. And, uh, and with that, he just left. And suddenly I'm not feeling so good about my personal best because he's gone in a flash, you know. It's kind of like, and, but I did. I found myself going, well, who determined that this was my personal best? Physical limitations? I mean, I don't know. A lot of it's mental. Is that true? How, how about earning power? Um, no show of hands, but, but wait, based on what you believe about your abilities and opportunities and that kind of stuff, just again, don't respond. How, how many of you think you could make $10 a day or... Or $100 a day, or $1,000 a day, or a million dollars a year. I mean, there, there are limits to our income-producing power, right? Who, who set those limits? I think about my sister and I. We're only about a year and a half apart, and uh, we've made about the same grades in school, and, and we went away to college, both of us considering law school. I was called to ministry. She went to law school. She's been an attorney now all these years. She works for the Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare now in the state and uh, has been in the private sector for many years. How many believe that Sandra has probably made more money than I have over the last 40, 50 years? Uh, and she's probably watching online. Ah, I'm, not, I'm not jealous or anything, Sandra. But... Uh, very, very proud of my sister and all she's done, particularly for handicapped adults in our society, because that's been her specialty in law. But bottom line is, I made a decision based on what I believe God had called me to do, and it put limits on my income. I have no regrets. But I made some decisions that put limits. 
So all I'm saying to you is that we all have limits, but those limits are not necessarily based on our capacity. They're based on our choices, right? So here's the question for all of us. How about your level of blessings that you receive from God? Are there any limits there for you? I mean, I can't imagine that any of you would say to me, Pastor, I love the idea of praying and nothing happens. I just love that. I can't imagine that you say, I love going to the bridge and, and one of these powerful songs starts singing and I, people, I see people with their hands raised and tears flowing and I can tell that they're just experiencing something and I feel absolutely nothing and I'm glad about it. I really like that part of just kind of watching that but not really experiencing it. I, I can't imagine that anybody would say that. But the question of the day is, is if there are limits to the amount of intimacy that we have with God, the amount of blessing that we receive from God, who, who, who put those limits there? That's the question I want us to ponder this morning and for a few minutes as we kick off a brand new series that we're calling Love God With All. It's based in the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 12. These are the words, just to give you some context. He was during a season of his ministry when there was a lot of opposition rising. They were recognizing his popularity and the religious leaders and the civic leaders of the day were really nervous about all of that. And so they began to challenge him in all sorts of ways. And, and some of the Pharisees came to him one day and tried to trick him up by saying, okay, how do you sum up the whole Bible? Understand that they had, they had written a book, an 800-page book to explain the Ten Commandments. So they really explained expanded the law in great detail. And so the trick question, how do you sum it all up? Thinking they got him now. He didn't hesitate. He answered Mark chapter 12, verse 30. It's on the screens. Here we go. Read it with me. One, two, three. Love the Lord your God with, what does all include? All, everything. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And he went on to say, and love your neighbor as yourself. We'll talk about that at some point in the foreseeable future. But for this conversation and this month, we're going to be talking about what does that actually mean? If you've been in church very long, if you've been around Christian people, you probably have heard that expression, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and neighbors yourself. I mean, it's a pretty common kind of expression among Christian people. But what, is it, what does it actually mean to love God with all? Week by week, we're going to explore each of those four things and unpack them. And then we're going to ask ourselves, honestly, how am I doing? How, how, am I, how, how are things going for me in that category? Am I really loving God with all? So this is going to be one of those, I hope, practically enlightening series for you and frankly challenging series for all of us as we dig into this simple but powerful, what Jesus called the sum of it all. Today, of course, we're talking about how to love God with all our hearts, and that word heart in the original language, the Greek language, uh, is cardio, cardia, we get the English word cardio from, or cardiac, and of course that, that's the primary organ of the body, but more than that, particularly in this context, it, refused to, it refers to the seat of emotional activity. So our hearts 
are talking about our passions. They're talking about our motivations. They're talking about our interests. They're talking about our desires. Those things that we put first, if we don't get anything else right, man, I want to give some time to that. Here's how Solomon put it in Proverbs 23, 7, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. So the heart is the seat of all of that. Not just the primary organ in our bodies, but it is the center of all of this kind of stuff. So understanding that, let me restate my question. What limits have you put on God's blessings in your life? Rephrase. How much of your heart have you really given God? Let me rephrase it. What percentage of your desires, passions, motivations are centered in the person of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you? That's the question that's on my mind today and I want to plant on your minds as well. To help us kind of unpack that and the importance of that, I want to look at a man in the Bible who, who set limits on his love for God and the result was he paid a really, really high price he put limits on his life, not limits based on his ability or his wealth or his opportunities, but, but limits simply on the basis of his motivations, his desires, his passions, and where he put them. The story is found in 1 Kings, and so if you brought your Bible, you can flip over there. You can go to the Bridge NC app and pull, the, pull that up there, save it to your journal, and you can take notes this morning. We'll follow along on the screens as well to make sure you can get it all, but we're going to 1 Kings and looking at the story of a man named Solomon. Real early on in Solomon's life, he loved God with all his heart. In fact, he and God used to commune on a regular basis in an intimate kind of way. And one day, uh, God was so impressed with this young man that he said to him, uh, tell me what you want, you can have it. It was almost like finding the, the lantern, you know, and rubbing it three times. It's just tell me what you want, you can have it. And he could have asked for wealth. He could have asked for fame. He could have asked for, for, for power, anything. He could ask for any of it. But Solomon, being fully in love with God, said, you know what? I, I'm going to be king one day, and so I want to be sure I've got wisdom. I want to have the wisdom to be the kind of king that my people need me to be. And God was so impressed with his answer that he gave him what he asked for, and he gave him the wealth and the fame and all the other stuff too. And so Solomon became not only the king of Israel, but he became known in the known world as the wisest man alive, the wealthiest man alive, which ushered in the golden age for, uh, for the nation of Israel in the world, and they developed most favored nation status with God. They got riches and military might and cultural heights. You name it, Israel was the center of the world in those days. But by the time we get to chapter 11 of 1 Kings, we discover there's a problem with Solomon's heart. And that is simply that Solomon began to give part of his heart to women from foreign lands. Kings 11, 1 Kings 11 says that he, he began to marry. Harems were pretty common in those days. He began to marry Moabites and Edomites and, and Hittites and stalagmites and stalactites and gazuntites and all those I'm just trying to see if you're listening. This group's not listening at all. You didn't even follow me, but then were you? 
He started marrying these women from foreign lands. And even though God specifically warned him not to, let's pick up our story in chapter 11, verse 2 in the NIV. Here we go. You must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, lowercase g, not real gods, false gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. Let that sink in for just a minute. The smartest guy in the world is telling the all-powerful God, I know what I'm doing. I know what you're saying. You're telling me no. You're even telling me why I shouldn't marry these women. And I know I'm probably going to crash and burn for doing it, but I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. In fact, verse 3 says that he ultimately married 700 of them and had 300 mistresses besides. I mean, I, the first time I read that many years ago, my brain went boom. It's like, how could somebody that smart be that dumb? I mean, all his life he's honored God and God's honored him. He's, he's obeyed God, served God. God's blessed him beyond any description. And so why would he give any part of his heart to anything else, much less the very thing that God warned him not to give it to, knowing that it would be the end of blessings in his life? Why, why would Solomon put limits on what God could do, wanted to do in his life and in the nation he led over this, over anything. God says just this one thing, because these women will turn your heart away from me. Now, let me just throw in right quick, lest there be any confusion. This is not an injunction against marrying people from other races, other ethnicities. Ain't got nothing to do with that. It's an injunction, if anything, against marrying non-believers if you're a believer. That's what it is. It's, a, it's make sure that the person you align yourself with most intimately in human relationship shares your faith, shares your love for God with all your heart. Otherwise, they will begin to pull your heart away. But before we get too judgmental with Solomon, um, I got to tell you, the first time I read that, I, my thought immediately went to, wait a minute, if the smartest guy that ever lived wrecked his faith, then, oh, Jimmy, you better be honest about your stuff. You, you better take a hard look at who you are, because I'm clearly not as bright as he is. Thank you for staying quiet on that one. And he fouled up his deal. So what are the odds that I'm not going to mess mine up and end up in a ditch somewhere? Can I throw in a personal note? I've said this more than I want to say it in recent weeks and months. We've watched some of the great leaders of our lifetimes do the same thing Solomon did. And it breaks my heart every time. I grieve deeply every time. This week, I don't know if you've seen the news, Ravi Zacharias and the mess that's going on and that great ministry that they built, international ministry, is starting to dismantle because of it. So I found myself even back then, nearly 50 years ago, saying, God, if, if, if he can mess up and if these other guys can mess up, then, man, I, I, better, I better get intentional about this thing. I mean, what, what could I be passionate about? What could I be motivated toward? What could I be putting my desires into 
that are not worthy of the high calling in Christ Jesus. And so I wasn't sure. I mean, I really struggled to find out. So I called my mentor, Dr. Herbert Carter. I've mentioned him many times around here before. I went to Dr. Carter and I sat down and I said, I've read this story and man, it jumped off the page at me. Can you tell me what you see in me? And his answer, I love Dr. Carter, uh, he's in heaven now, but uh, I loved his honesty with me. I could always count on it. He, uh, he said, well, Jim, it's a little too early to tell. But guys like you usually struggle in three areas. He said, you tend to struggle with money, you tend to struggle with ego, and you tend to struggle with sex. So if you're going to guard your heart, make sure that it's all the Lord's, I recommend that you set up some guidelines and some parameters in those three areas in your life. And I took what he had to say to heart and began to really seek the Lord. Lord, how am I doing with these three issues? Is there anything in my heart that I'm holding back from you? And if so, show me what it is and help me to make sure. Because if the smartest guy in history put these limits on him himself, then who am I to be so arrogant that I can't do it myself? I got to stop. You know I do. I got to stop. And I got to ask you before we go on, have you been on a journey like that? Have you taken the time recently perhaps to say, okay, Lord, is there anything? Is there a chink in my armor somewhere? Is there a portion of my heart that I'm holding back from you? Is there some of my hurts? that I'm still holding on to? Uh, is there some habits that I'm holding on to? Are there some hang-ups that I don't want to let go of? Is there some unforgiveness that I'm hanging on to? Are there some pet sins that I don't want to let go of? Is there anything in my heart that's keeping me from loving you with all of my heart? If it is, please show me. Let me know. Put somebody in my life that loves me enough and I trust enough to tell me if they see something. It's important because your answer is the first step to actually loving God with all. That said, I want to give you the three parts of that process. That just how do you go about loving God with all of your heart? I think there's three parts to it, and I'll let you go, okay? Took a long time to set that up because I wanted you to get it. These three parts are pretty simple. Easy to say, not always easy to do, but I want to challenge you to lean into this thing because I'm going through a fresh round of it myself right now. Part number one is you've got to identify your limits. You have to identify, Lord, what is it? What is the thing that I'm holding on to? What is, what is that one thing that keeps me from loving you with, with all? Now, here's the problem. We tend to be pretty good at seeing one another's limits. Don't look around. But we really struggle to see our own. Can I get an amen? I see a few head nods. I mean, I think if I had lived in Solomon's day, by the time he got to 250 foreign wives, I probably would have picked up on the pattern. I, I think I would have said, uh, <clears throat> uh, Solly, uh, I think there might be something going on here. And I think maybe you ought to recognize that God said, don't do that. And, you know, at 250, maybe you're doing it. I mean, I would have picked up on that. I'm just really astute like that. I have the gift of discernment. What can I say? But closer to home, I see some of you guys. 
I see it all the time. I see, I see people who, who put career success ahead of their love for God. I see it. I see people who put sports ahead of their love for God. I see people who put hobbies ahead of their love for God. I see it all the time. I see people who, who, who have a thousand excuses for not tithing, for not serving, for not coming into relationship with the body of Christ. And they talk a good story about loving God and they, and they do the minimums or, you know, they're engaged. But at the end of the day, once it gets past the convenience zone or the comfort zone, it's like, whoa, wait a minute, whoa. Don't get extreme with me. I see it all the time. I've been watching it for 50 years. Others uh, who claim to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, but, but if they're honest, there's a streak of self-will in there. Yeah, he's God, but I like controlling my own environment. I like controlling my own destiny. I, I am the captain of my own fate, and I will make my decisions on my own. Thank you very much, God. I'll call you if I need you. I have a deeply theological expression for you who fall into that category. You can't even decide where you're going for lunch today and you're going to be the captain of your own fate. Give me a break. But I see it all the time. I see people who say, I love God with all, but they don't have the discipline to read their Bibles or pray. Or, or they'll come after the worship set to hear the message because they don't really like that music stuff missing the whole point of that music stuff. I see it all the time. And I'm not here to pick on anybody. I'm just saying that it's easier to see these limits in other people than it is to see it in ourselves. Can I get an amen in the room? Some people I see all the time limited in their potential because they're choked by fear. I can see the call on their lives. I can see the gifts on their, in their lives. But it's like, well, I don't know why God couldn't use somebody like me to do something like that. Are you kidding? No, oh, no. The biggest challenge is not to see it in other people. The biggest challenge is to see it in ourselves. And some of you know uh, that it drove me to ultimately write the Christian Maturity Assessment Tool. If there's copies of them at the guest services, you can pick them up on your way out if you're interested. But it's just a tool to help you walk through what's going on in your life in real practical terms and to ask the honest question, um, how am I doing? Is this consistently true for me? Is it sometimes true for me? And so I would encourage you, and if we run out this morning, we'll get more copies and we'll make them available to you. But let me encourage you to, to reflect on the Christian Maturity Assessment Tool. I do it every year in my own personal devotional time, and, and I try to identify areas of my life that I really want to focus on because I'm determined to be fully devoted to Jesus Christ uh, in every area of my life. But there's a second part to this assessment tool, and it's what we call the affirmation meeting. And the affirmation meeting is that I go through this process by myself, and then I sit down with somebody that I trust, and I say, will you go through it with me and tell me if I've been honest with myself? I learned a long time ago from one of my professors at Gordon-Conwell that anytime you do an assessment like that, there's what he called the L factor, and I'm not talking about loser, I'm talking about liar. <laughs> and it's not that we're lying to other people, it's that it's really, really easy to lie to ourselves about what's really going on. Human beings have an amazing capacity to rationalize why 
they're doing what they're doing or failing to do what they should be doing. We have this amazing capacity to rationalize, but what you need to understand is that when you rationalize, you are telling yourself rational lies. Hello? Thank you. Yes, Lord, you trying to tell us? The alarm's doing funny stuff this morning. So if we get an alarm and we have to shut down, hear me, God's called us to love him with all. Stop by the guest desk and pick one up if you're brave enough to do it. Get in your closet with a flashlight and fill it out and then burn it when it's done so nobody else can see, if nothing else. But the question is, can you name any interest, any passion, any desire that's limiting what God can do and even wants to do in your life and through your life? Will you be so bold as to do an honest assessment of that and even bolder still, ask somebody you trust to go through that journey with you? In other words, will you get serious about this very serious business? And if you're wondering, wow, that seems overkill, let me give you a motivator. Let's go back to chapter 11, verse Kings. Verse 4, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. In other words, God said it would happen, and it did. So the motivator to finding out and eradicating your limiter is the second part of this process is understand the cost of your limits. Understand the cost that you're paying when you allow those limits to stay in place. Now, now here's the statement, blows me away every time I read it. Verses 9 and 11 of 1 Kings 11, the Lord became angry with Solomon because his, What? Because his heart had turned away from the Lord. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude, this is your heart, this is your cardio, I will most certainly, read it with me out loud, tear the kingdom away from you. Understand, Solomon is still obeying a lot of God's laws. He's still doing the sacrifices. He's still going to the high holy days. He's still calling the nation to Jehovah God, the God of the universe. He's still obeying a lot of God's laws. The issue was not his, his actions. The issue was his attitude in doing the actions. If you've been around here very long, you've heard me say many times, it's not so much about what you do as it is about who you are in doing them. And so God got angry about this thing. Solomon, yeah, you're doing a lot of the right stuff, but, but I told you if you do this one thing, your heart's going to be pulled away from me, and you did it anyway, and now I see your heart pulling away from me. So he's giving some of his heart to God, but not all of his heart to God, which tells me that 95% devotion to God is 5% short. 95% devotion to God just doesn't cut it. Now, let me bring that home to our world because none of us have 700 wives and 300 mistresses, okay? I hope. I mean, if you do, come see me. Pastor Andy will help you work through that. 
But imagine with me, average guy named Joe, his wife's Jane, nice folks. They come to, uh, to the bridge one Sunday and they discover amazing grace and they say yes to Jesus and they get new life and a fresh start. And so they start this wonderful journey of relationship with God. They got their ticket punched for heaven and they tuck it away and they start attending church on a fairly regular basis, drop a few bucks in the offering plate. Maybe they even join a serve team and start thinking about maybe next semester I may join a bridge group and get in a relationship with somebody, maybe even read the Bible now and then and, and pray when they're in a jam. I mean, they're just starting to grow in this journey. But truth be told, six months in, nothing's really changed much in their lives. Nothing's really changed much in their attitudes. They're going to church on Sunday, but nothing's really changed. And then they come to church and they hear a message like this and they go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, preacher. Oh, whoa, time out here. Whoa, wait a minute. Ah, uh, you know, I, okay. I'm probably only 25% devoted to God, but that's 25% more than I was six months ago. And I look around and I see people around me and that's, that's at least 20% better than that guy sitting down the pew from me because I saw him yesterday in town, you know. And so we start doing this comparison thing and we start thinking, you know, maybe I'm doing pretty good. And then this passage comes along with this idea that, that, that God is hurt, even angry, with partial devotion and it blows our minds. And so we go, what, 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 what's the big deal? Why? Why, is it, why is partial devotion so painful to God? I mean, why is 25%, 80, 90% devotion so upsetting to God? And the answer is because he is fully invested in us. He's 100% invested in you. He poured everything out for you. He didn't hold anything back from you, including his own son, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He gave the blood of his son. He gave his love, his care. He gave answered prayer. He gave provision. He gave blessing. He gave grace. He, he gave, gave direction. He gave forgiveness. He gave power for living. He gives it all to us. He doesn't hold anything back from us. And so that's what God is saying to Solomon in the passage. How, 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 could you, how could you have done this to me? I mean, I gave you the throne. I gave you the wisdom you asked for. I gave you riches. I gave you every grace. And you, and you disobeyed me anyway. You, you turned your back on your relationship with me for the relationship with these people that are pulling you away from me. I can almost hear God saying, what's, what's the deal, Solomon? Did I not love you enough? Did I not do enough for you? You see, that's the problem, if you can call it that. God always gives full devotion to us so he can't accept anything less than full devotion back. And again, in case you, th you think that's harsh, think of it this way. Uh, tomorrow, Kim and I will celebrate our 45th wedding anniversary. What a good woman. Yeah. Thank God for giving me such a good woman. Praise God for that. I'm blessed every day. But what if all those years ago I would stood at the altar, stared into her eyes, and said, I love you so much. I will honor and cherish you uh, till the day I die. 
I will be faithful to you on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays from now on. What do you think her response would have been? We would not be celebrating our 45th anniversary tomorrow, I can promise you that. Why? Because she gave full devotion to me. She expected, are you with me? Full devotion in return. That's why betrayal is so incredible, incredibly painful because we're in relationships that give it all. They expect it all back in return. The good news is, as I told her, I will love you and cherish you and, and until the day I die. And she said the same thing to me. And we've certainly not gotten it perfect over these years, but we've had 40 wonderful years together. The other five, eh, okay, we made it. <laughs> you, know. you hear me. One of the reasons we've been able to do that is because we both made the same commitment to Jesus many years ago is that we will put him first, even ahead of our relationship with each other. You see, our vertical relationship with God is the most important relationship, and then our relationship with each other is the most important human relationship we have. And since then, God has blessed our lives immeasurably. I mean, not only rescued us from our own sinfulness and adopted us into his family and gave us a fresh start and put us in positions where we have relationships with other people that are on the same journey, but he, I mean, he's taken us all over the world. He's given us the honor of ministering to people that, that don't even speak our language. He's given us the privilege of leading some of the most incredible churches on the planet, including this one. He gave us three amazing sons, three wonderful, beautiful, God-loving, children-loving daughters-in-law. He's given us eight amazing grandchildren of whom I am. I'm embarrassingly proud. I'd be glad to show you pictures if you want to hang out after church. He's given us health beyond uh, my imagination to be able to do what I do at 68. It's just mind-blowing to me. He's given us respect of our family and our people. I mean, I could go on, and I'm not trying to point to me. I'm saying if you stopped lately and just listed the blessings... Because if you just stop thinking about what you don't like and just focus on, he's given me this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And if you're honest about that journey, if you walk with him very long, the conclusion of that whole list is how can I give him anything less than everything? How can I dedicate anything less than all, whatever part of my heart I might keep from God? is certifiably dumb. Whatever fraction of loyalty I may sell out at the altar of the approval of men or, or fear or doubt or whatever it might be is just whatever worship I might withhold from him just is mind-boggling. So let me be blunt. If you're thinking... Yeah, I'm doing better than I was six months ago. I'm doing better than a lot of the people around me. If you're thinking 95% devotion is enough, then think again. If you think I'm pushing it a little too far, then take this third step with me. Yes, you need to identify 
of those limitations to God's blessings in your life. You need to understand the cost of what you're paying for holding on to it because Solomon paid the loss of his kingdom. Ravi Zacharias has paid the dismantling of an international ministry and who knows the hurt on so many people's lives. We all pay the cost when we hold on to our limitations. So we need to do the third part of this process. And that is just simply embrace God's limitless love for you. Romans 5, chapter 8, and I'll bring this to a close. God demonstrated his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want us to read that out loud. I want you to hear yourself reading it this morning. God demonstrates, come on, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you're confused at all about the level of devotion that God has to you, remember that while you were still rejecting him, while you were still going your own way, while you were still saying those holy rollers are foolish people, while you were saying, I don't get it, I don't care about it, I'm not even sure if God is there and I don't care if he is while you were doing that he gave his son for you he paid the price for your sin while you were still thumbing your nose at him so the pastor jim paraphrase of romans 5 8 is simply we've all rejected god to go our own way nevertheless christ died for us solomon's nevertheless was, I kind of like these women. They're good-looking women. And there's some advantages in the kingdom if I, you know, if I do some alliances with these other foreign kings. And so I, I, I'm going to let part of my heart go toward these foreign women. Christ, nevertheless, is whether you accept me or not, I love you. Whether you respond to me or not, I'm giving it all to you. Whether you believe in me or not, I'm giving it all to you. That's Jesus, nevertheless. You may never follow me, nevertheless, I love you. So what's your nevertheless? What are you willing to do to figure out what your nevertheless is. The good news is that late in Solomon's life, he finally figured it all out and came back to ground zero. One of the last pieces of wisdom he ever wrote at the end of his life now, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Here's my final advice. Honor God and obey his commands. This is the most important thing people can do. God knows everything people do, even the things done in secret. He knows all the good and all the bad. He will judge everything people do. Solomon's saying, as I look back over my life and the mistakes that I made, I look back over the wealth and the fame and the women, and I realize that none of it matters a hill of beans. The only thing that ultimately matters is honor God and obey his commands. Love him 
and follow him. By far the most important thing you can do, he says, and don't play games with this, he goes on to say, because you can fool the preacher, you can fool uh, maybe even your family for a while, you can fool your neighbors, you can fool your bridge group members. But what does Solomon say? God sees your heart. And it's not just your obedience he's after, it's your heart your desires, your passions, your motivators. And he sees them for real. The good news is, look what happens when God finds someone who loves him with all their hearts. Second Chronicles 16, 9, this is my life verse. I've quoted a thousand times in hundreds of different settings. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose Obedience is just right. Who's, who's checking all the boxes and getting all the do's and don'ts right. Is that what it says? Because let's be honest, guys, none of us are getting it all right. I thought I'd get one amen in the room. Searching the whole earth to strengthen those whose, what's the word? Hearts are fully committed to him. I got room to grow, you got room to grow. I got stuff, you got stuff, all God's children got stuff. We're not talking about sinless perfection here. We are talking about devotion. Who am I really committed to in my heart of hearts? That word fully committed is the Hebrew word shalem that means wholeness. Can I tell you, and I'll, I'll hush, I promise, but the more places that I go, the more I look around, the more convinced I am that God brought the bridge into existence, not only to do what he's done for the last 102 plus years, but to do some amazing things in these last days. I believe it with everything in me. And as I look across this room and I imagine the faces of, of so many faithful that are watching online for health reasons, you're online instead of being here. I get it. God didn't just bring this church into existence for this purpose, but he's assembling a group of people, you and me, for his purposes to make a difference in these last days. He wants to pour so much into us. He wants abundance for us. Not so we could go around bragging about our abundance, but so that there would be overflow on the millions of people in our world who desperately need Jesus. But he's looking for a few who will say, I'm yours all in, putting it all on the line. I am yours. What do you suppose we could do if 10 of us did that? Just 10 people in this room right now. If 100 of us in this room would do that right now, wholeheartedly, all in, we are yours, Lord. What if 1,000 people in this church would do that? 
what kind of difference could we make in these end times with a little bit of time left until Jesus comes back? I'm asking you, I'm begging you for your sake and for the sake of the world around us, 95% devotion is 5% short. I'm gonna ask you to stand with me. We're gonna close in prayer. I'm not gonna embarrass you in any way. This is a private moment between you and God, but I'm gonna ask you to pray that prayer with me. If you're not ready to pray it, I understand, but I'm gonna ask you to seriously consider praying this prayer. Let me tell you what it is so you know what commitment you're about to make. God, I am yours. I'm yours. Turn your searchlight on me and see if there be any wicked way and show me the way everlasting. That was David's prayer after he blew it, gave his heart to something he had no right to. So I'm gonna ask you to join me in that prayer. Silently, aloud, I don't care, online, right there on your couch, sitting in your car, wherever you are. Lord, I am yours. Thank you for giving all to me. I choose to return all of me to you. Turn your searchlight on and show me if there's any area of my life that is not passionately aimed toward you, centered in you, show me what it is and help me to lay it at the foot of the cross so that I am loving you with all of my heart. In Jesus' name. Father, you know who's praying. You, you know what you're revealing to all of us as we pray that kind of a prayer. Would you give us the gentle reminder that you don't care how far we've been or even where we were when we walked in to this service today. You only care about the direction of our feet going forward. Today's the day of fresh start. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said,